Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I am recording this right before I'm leaving for a two-day guided trip. You know, you heard about my last guided trip in the last episode with Barry Cruz, but today I'm actually, this past weekend, I took me and some friends, just invited a bunch of friends. We took almost 40 people down some rivers in Florida, some paddleboarding. You know, we've got a mixture of paddleboarding, canoeing, and kayaking. And I, I, I'm going to just say it, you know, this is one of my favorite things to do now is getting other people outdoors. It's such a joy to see people go camping for the first time, get on a river and experience this kind of journey for the first time. I'm recording this right before I leave, so I haven't had the experience yet. So, and also my mic's not totally right. I'm still getting used to this new one, trying to figure it out. But this episode is with Jack Fleckney and we recorded it back in, geez, September. And I lost the file. I don't know if you remember a couple months ago, I lost like five or six of my episodes that I recorded my SD card corrupted that I had them saved on. I didn't have any backups, unfortunately. I just forgot to back those up. And Jack was one of them. He was gracious enough to re-record. And since we had talked, he had done another adventure, which was to row across the Atlantic Ocean. So we talk a lot more about that than we did in the previous episode. In his first episode, we talked about his expedition across Africa. It was almost like a triathlon across Africa, kayaking and biking and climbing. Um, it was amazing, but just a little bit of, Jack, Jack is a wild man. Like, I, I, you know, there's really no other way to say it. He is crazy. He's a former pro rugby player, former Royal Marine Commando, and now a full-time adventurer. And he started off taking these crazy 24-hour challenges, like 24-hour world record pull-ups, 24-hour rope climbs, 24-hour ski ergs, where you're just like pulling these two ropes down, like, like, like you're skiing, like you're cross-country skiing for literally 24 hours. And then did a foot race across the Sahara, a 2,000-kilometer expedition through southern Africa, which involved cycling and running. Like I said, he climbed all the boabab trees on this island in 24 hours, then kayaked the Akavango Delta, 470 kilometers, and had 50 hippo and crocodile encounters. That is... <laughs> For someone who's been around a lot of gators, crocodiles and hippos sounds insane. I've never been around those two on a kayak, so I can't even imagine. <laughs> but we talk about all that. We talk about his most recent Atlantic Ocean crossing, which he did back in December. So it's, it's a lot to cover, lots of amazing adventures. If you want to follow along, jackfleckney.co.uk um, or at jackfleckney on Instagram. So I uh, hope you enjoy our conversation. Jack's just an amazing person doing so much good for the world. And I, I did want to mention that each of his adventures raises money for some cause, goes towards something. Love what he's doing. So let's go ahead and dive into this challenge Africa and gosh, everything else he's doing. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today is another episode that I had accidentally lost through I think y'all have heard the story of, of my hard drive going out on me and I lost a bunch of episodes. Well, Jack here was one of those episodes we recorded back in September 22. It's crazy how time flies, first of all, Jack. I can't believe it was that long ago. And by the time this comes out, it's going to be even farther out. So that's insane that how long it actually takes to get these things going, especially for someone like you who has so much going on. But Jack, you're a former rugby player, a Royal Marine commando, and now... I don't know if you'd say full-time, but you're an adventurer through and through, and you've done some incredible things. We originally had you on to talk about Challenge Africa, this amazing like triathlon thing you did that was so unique, first of its kind, that was hundreds of kilometers, thousands of kilometers across Africa. And since then, you have done some climbing in the Alps, and you just recently got back from crossing the ocean uh, the Atlantic Ocean with a couple of your your blokes, as y'all called them. Man, how, how are you feeling? I mean, this was just a couple weeks ago. How are you feeling? And welcome to the show again. <laughs> Mate, thank you very much for having me back on again. To be fair, it was great talking about last time because it was a chance to like decompress and review it all, which actually I don't think I've properly done. So it's really nice and I'm sure we'll enjoy talking about it today. I'm actually feeling okay now. My body's my hands have nearly fully healed. I've got a few cuts and things on them still, but they're getting better. The only thing I've been struggling with 
since um, since we come back. So it's been about two weeks now. Is sleep? I'm still struggling to sleep all night. So I'm I'm basically going to sleep and I wake up an hour later and I feel like it's it's time to get back up again, <laughs> which is not great. But other than that, I'm feeling okay. Thank you. And and that's because you were were you on the two hours on two hours off schedule like a lot of ocean rowers do? Yes, yeah, pretty much. There's a few adaptations to that as we were going through, and because we were doing it slightly different, so I was sort of managing all the navigation side ourselves. So it was quite an element of in that two hour rest doing that. So probably it did knock the sleep time down. So yeah, it's probably averaging maybe one to maybe just over an hour sleep, I'd say, each four-hour block. Did you feel like you could function pretty well that way? Did you feel like, okay, I, I you know, my body's used to this now. Did you get to that point? Or was it just always bizarre? Well, there's one thing I've always hated, which is wake up in the middle of the night. I can't, you know, my time in the forces and everything. And I still hate it now. So yeah, you, you do get used to it. It's like anything. And I'm sure there's lots of people listening to your podcast have done amazing things as well. And your body just is so clever and just adapts to it. So it does. Maybe the first four or five days, it's a big shock to the system. And, you know, you're you kind of like thinking, wow, am I actually going to be able to do this for X amount of time? But by the end of it, it was just normal. And actually, it felt weird to finish it and then get back into a normal routine again. Unbelievable. Yeah, 39 days out on the Atlantic Ocean. And we've had ocean rowers on the show before talking specifically about uh, the Talisker Whiskey Challenge. We've had some folks from that. One thing that happened to the last crew was a sailfish went up through the the bottom of the boat in the middle of the night while they were sleeping in one of the cabins. Did y'all have anything like that happen? That was maybe the craziest thing I'd ever heard that happened out on one of those ocean rows. What's maybe one of the wildest things that happened to y'all? Uh, I heard about that. That is like a, a marlin strike, wasn't it? Straight yeah. through. Yeah, that, not sure. Yeah, um, not yeah. sure exactly the uh, fish, but it was one of those you know marlins, sailfish, something like that that went up through the boat and the yeah. be- the beak broke off in the boat. So I've heard that. Yeah, and that's uh, that is crazy. We did think we we heard stories of that, and I'd seen a few images of it as well because when you're training, getting ready for it, one of the things we got ready for was in case that happens, so how, how we'd seal it and bung the hole to then carry on. I suppose the craziest thing for us throughout the whole thing was that we're 24 hours into the race, the boat began leaking. So we had to basically bail the leak out every, every two hours. So every time we swapped over, we had to hand pump probably about 100 kilos of water out of the boats we found we found out at the end that we were carrying about 250 kilos of of leaking water across the uh across just to make it a little bit harder for ourselves other than that actually wildlife wise is incredible we had no dangers we had some bad weather like everyone does but i suppose the leak was our team challenge that we had to deal with and every team has something during the crossing that goes wrong and they have to try and work out You've done a lot of different kinds of adventures, everything from, you know, mountaineering to kind of jungle exploration, climbing trees that we talked about in the last episode that, again, didn't get published because we lost it, right? Kayaking from hippos that are chasing you, all kinds of stuff like that. To me, being out on the ocean like that feels like an entirely different beast. You know, you're just the isolation, the exposure, you can't really replicate it on land. How did it feel to you? Did this feel like one of your biggest challenges or just was it, you know, in the end, something that wasn't as difficult as you thought? Yeah, it was um, It was definitely different. So I think the the different elements of it were the isolation, you said there, and I think it was actually more of a mental battle than it was physical. So I'd built up my head ready for this, like, physical, absolute fight, war to get to the end, but it actually wasn't that. There's only so fast you could row. And based on the conditions and actually, you know, you're heavily reliant on wind during the race to help you get across. So it was more of a psychological battle of dealing with that bad weather, of the fact that, you know, two days in, the team dynamics, the leadership aspect of the of the work with the team and those kind of things that, that were the toughest for me. The fact that you couldn't get away and you knew, you know, we were, we were three days in and we were bailing out a boat that was leaking in bad weather and you know two, two or three of our teammates you know just were in deep in what we would call the pain locker I'm sure you've heard that before and uh and I was thinking wow you know we we potentially got another 30 odd days of this so 
it was definitely the psychological battle on the boat and that that I found a lot more difficult than the physical side. I, I can imagine, yeah, because you you can't, you know, you're doing this for so long, you don't want to burn yourself out physically so quickly. You just got to do something that you can do for, well, two hours at a time, but 24 hours a day, essentially every two hours. And yeah, the mental side, I'm sure it, it probably very quickly sets in what you're getting ready to do. I always find that that's, that's the hardest part about an adventure, whether it's, you know, you're doing something for one day or doing something for a month. It's that first 5% of the trip or 10% of the trip where it really it is that climb to accepting the the rest of the 90% you're about to go through. So like I just did a, a paddle across a lake that was, I mean, it's, it's, it's microscopic compared to what you just did, but it, I know it was going to be like half a day of doing this in some pretty bad weather. And so that first like half hour was that acceptance period for me. And I was like, Oh my gosh, are we really about to do this all day? And you just kind of, <laughs> then you just break through that, that wall. And then you just kind of get in the groove. And I'm sure for y'all, it did take, gosh, probably a week to, to kind of really accept it. I don't, it sounds like that was the case. And, and even a couple of days in y'all are really, really having a hard time in the pain locker, as you said. So true, Mason. Yeah, really. It's the same now. I went out for a run yesterday. The first five minutes, I'm like, what am I doing? And I have to fight through and then get back into rhythm again. But so it is, it's the same with any kind of, any kind of physical thing we do, I think. How far was your kayak then? What was this bad weather you dealt? Oh, it was a, it was a, it was, it was along the border of a lake. So nothing in comparison. It was just, you know, a handful of miles with a headwind across a really big lake on a paddleboard, and it was just terrible weather. But constantly getting hit by waves, getting all your stuff wet, and we were trying to get to a camping spot. But it did make me think. I, I know we were going to talk today, and it did make me think. Like I can't imagine this, and knowing you have thirty days of this, or you're halfway through and you have another two weeks and it's much bigger waves and, and much, uh, I don't know, much less. I, I could get off and get on land if I needed to. You never had that option. So I, I'm always blown away. I know we've had some, some ocean rowers on this show before, but I'm always blown away by by the achievement. It's unreal. Absolutely unreal. Well, that, that, that's very kind of you, mate. But also don't forget that actually you having the land there actually makes it mentally tougher for you because actually when we push off and get going there's you know there's no backing out you you when you're there you've got to do it so it kind of it, because that thought's not there because there's no way of getting off the boat and stopping it does change your perspective on it and the way you attack you it burn the boats you know you burn there's no going back there's no going back yeah that is funny because about half uh, probably a third of the group did quit because the land was there and then that that was a challenge because it was like Okay, well, we're out in the middle of nowhere. How, how where do we? How do you get out of here? You know, you, there's no easy. There's you can't even quit in an easy way because it's like you can't go back upstream. The the the, the current's too strong of the river that pours into the lake, and there's no there's no good way to leave. So that creates its own challenge. So in a lot of ways, it's it's there's not a lot of good options. You just got to wait out the storm or whatever. But anyway, that's one of my little micro adventures I do on a regular basis. But Man, so so when we last talked, we were talking about Challenge Africa, but and you were getting ready for this. And you were also, I believe, getting ready for some climbing in the Alps. Do you want to take us through what, what was that? What was the climbing? What were what were you doing out there? Oh well it, it was kind of like a, a deal where we me and my partner, we mix a holiday and then I get to do a little bit of adventure as well and, and take off a bit of an adrenaline rush. So uh, we went we drove down to the Alps. Obviously it's quite easy for us. It's like 10 hours in the car from the UK um, and we stayed there. And then I, then I shot across the border into, um, into Switzerland and climbed a, a mountain called the Matterhorn. Oh yeah. Um, which is, um, uh, you know, if anyone's into climbing, it's a relatively famous mountain. So it's always one that I've wanted to do. Never really had the time or chance to go and do it. So yeah, went out and got to climb that and managed to time it perfectly because the day I arrived and got up to the mountain hut, you sort of have a, a, a relatively easy trek up to the mountain hut and then the Matterhorn is it does look like a horn it suddenly goes vertical and it's an incredible looking mountain 
and the mountain hut is right before the the, the real climbing and the and the scrambling and the mountaineering aspect begins. Got to the hut and found out that that night was the first first night they're going to open the mountain back up because it's been so hot that uh, the uh, the ice has been melting. There's been loads of rockfall, so there's been load of issues and um, and injuries and ill and problems. So. Yeah, I was lucky and opened it up, but because because I was there the first day it opened up, there was also about I think we had I think a few hundred people all trying to summit at four a.m. in the morning. So the the, the first maybe I was climbing with a with, with a, a Mikel who's a Spanish climber, and he's a very incredible climber, and he also weighs about fifty kilos. And he goes to me, "We're going to move fast to get past everyone." And I was like, "I like the sound of that. Let's get let's get ahead." Because with the Matterhorn, there is there is only one route up. The ridge that we went up, and as and because of the way the bolts are fitted along the wall and the the safety side, if you're stuck, you're in a queue basically. So the the further behind the queue you are, the longer you're going to be on the mountain. So if you can get to the front quickest, it pays off. And my god, he flew fast. I don't have ever been so out of breath in my life. I absolutely, <laughs> I was panting and gasping for air the whole way up. But um, and he looked like he wasn't even tired, mate. So <laughs> he was, he was incredible. It, it, very inspirational watching him climb up. But yeah, we got to summit, incredible mountain. I think we were like the first or second team up on top, um, and then shot back down again. And I was, I was really, really pleased and very lucky with the weather. And yeah, if anyone googles a Matterhorn, then you'll kind of see why I had a fascination with it. Unbelievable. I mean, it's an iconic mountain. It's it's on so many things. H- have you climbed other mountains? And how how was that difficulty compared to maybe some other things you've done? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. If you know me, you know that I love the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And what is that exactly? That is a network of contiguous lands that are connected that go all the way from the Everglades up to the Georgia and Alabama line. It's a continuous network of lands that animals use for migration. It encompasses over 40% of all of Florida, which equals 18 million acres. The good news is over half of that is already protected through conservation. The bad news is the other half, just under half, is threatened by roads and development. So the time to save this land is now, and that's why Live Wildly is so important. Live Wildly is an initiative to help bring awareness to and help folks take action on helping protect the Florida Wildlife Corridor so that we can ensure that Florida doesn't get totally developed in the coming decades. And Live Wildly's goal is to raise that public awareness to support the conservation of this Florida Wildlife Corridor. Because protecting corridors like this are not just good for the environment, it's crucial for the entire state's economy, local business, and ecotourism. You can follow them by looking up at LiveWildlyFL across all social media platforms. Go to LiveWildly.com for updates and how to enjoy and how to explore the corridor. Or reach out to me if you want to go on one of my paddle trips. I put one together every 8 to 10 weeks, and all of them take place within the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And I can't thank them enough for supporting this podcast because it's something that I spend my free time promoting. So thank you so much, and be sure to check out LiveWildly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I've climbed some different mountains in the Alps. I've done a few either like proper climbs up on summits, you know, glacial travel, you've done ice work. So this one actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was the exposure was incredible. So pretty much at some points you had like a thousand meters of exposure as you were as you were climbing up. But the actual difficulty wasn't uh wasn't as as hard i can kind of understand why they say it's so dangerous because actually it's relatively accessible for a lot of different abilities at the same time you make one mistake and you could fall a very very long way so um i loved that loved it because there was no element of it that you had to walk you were basically on all fours the whole way whether it's climbing scrambling you know um we didn't have too much because it is so hot we only had snow and ice for the last maybe hundred meters up to the summit, so we did. We had, you know, we didn't have to use um, ice axe at all. We had crampons on for the last hundred meters, so it really was like a, a an amazing day out, and um, and yeah, loved it. I absolutely loved it, and I'm sure I'll be back on it again in the near future. Gosh, all these things we're talking about are so different from one another. I, I kind of want to back up a little bit before we jump into Challenge Africa and some of the stuff we were talking about before. What do you do, man? When you people ask you, "Hey, Jack, what do you do?" What do you tell them? 
Uh, oh, it's a good question. I don't know myself, to be honest <laughs> yeah. with you. I feel a bit embarrassed when I kind of a lot of people ask me that. I suppose, you know, I'd probably just be a, try and be a bit of a jack of all trades and do different things. And if you ask me what my job is, I'd probably say, uh, you know, like a fundraiser for adventure or, and I'm sure there's lots of people that listen to this podcast that are into adventure and, and in some format they do it as a kind of level of work. So I guide I do public speaking, I do podcasts and things like this to, in order to try and, I'd probably say, keep keep the goals running and moving forward because it is so difficult to um, to make it more of a lifestyle than just a, just a hobby. I, I love the idea of being able to do lots of different kind of outdoors challenges, not just specialising in one. So remember, I suppose that my base is starting in mountains and then naturally, like anything, you just kind of, you try different things that start to evolve and change the way you look at it. And then all of a sudden you, you're juggling knots. So I suppose, to be honest with you, I'm probably not very good at all of it. I just try it all. And that's about it, really. The last time we talked, part of what makes this lifestyle possible is being a gym owner. Is that still the case? So yeah, I, well, with the gym, I sold the business probably about two, just over two years ago now. So I, I was in, I was in the military at the time and I'd just come back from my last deployment out in Afghanistan and I was kind of disillusioned with what I was trying to achieve as an individual. You know, like we all go through those times where we're like, what, what's my purpose? Why am I here? What am I trying to do? Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's every day, right? Yeah, I definitely end up asking myself those questions a lot. Yeah, I, I centered it on actually, I think I want to really look back and go, yeah, I've made a difference in some format. And at the time, I was competing in some different fitness competitions and enjoying it and doing some coaching on the side in the military. So I kind of put that together and said, hey, let's open a gym up. So I opened a CrossFit style gym, really basic, with just some money that I'd saved. And, you know, when I say basic, I was in this warehouse and the shutter door wouldn't go way down to the ground. So it's always freezing cold and there was holes in the wall and it was a pretty old building. But I just slowly built it up. And I suppose if you, you know, it's, it's easy to do, but fast forward four years, um, four years later, I'd probably, I'd built it up to be a little bit bigger. So we had, we had four or five locations and we built like a franchise model and we had a proper team of people that could do the jobs much, much better than I could do. So we got to that point and then I decided actually, you probably saw that I was doing some different charity challenges and I was like, actually, this is what I'm for kind of finding fulfilling in, in, in some ways, actually wanting to help other people. So in a bigger sense, rather than just within the gym community that I had. Uh, so yeah, so I said, well, look, I'm going to try and make that transition. So it was about two, I think it's about two and a half years ago when I decided I was going to sell those locations off to people and and then step away from it and step into the adventure stuff on more of a full-time basis. And even before then, you were in the Royal Marines. Uh, and before then, you were part of being a professional rugby player, would you say that? You were professional, right? Yeah, in some format, yeah. I was I was so young, really, that I wasn't I wasn't gonna be earning any kind of money doing it, but I was in a professional team. Yeah, I was I was only 15, 16 when I signed to them. I had a passion for rugby pretty probably for about the age of eight or nine years old. So I suppose my childhood was was really good, but probably quite difficult. I struggled at school when my mum and dad they split up when I was about seven years old. And I had no real hobbies, you know, and didn't play any kind of sports. And then actually when my stepdad moved into the family, I must have been eight or nine, and he he took me up to the local rugby club. And all of a sudden I had something that I was interested in and maybe something I want to try and get better at. And it was kind of my first hook and that first little spark. And then, you know, I just, I absolutely loved it. So that was my only interest, really. My dream was to play rugby. So I probably spent most of my childhood at the rugby club practicing on my own. And, and yeah, was lucky enough to... I'm from a place where you know there's not many sporting opportunities. It's quite quiet. So I was quite lucky to then get an opportunity to go for a trial down in London, a rugby team. And they said I was too small. I needed to put some muscle on. So they said, we we like your desire to want to play, so we'll get you involved. <laughs> so yeah, so I ended up moving down there for and, and played down there for maybe just over two years. Well, they, I, I don't think they'd tell you that now that you need to put some muscle on because you're <laughs> you're a beast. Well, and I do see <laughs> pictures of you back then. You were you were a scrawny little kid. Not well, so I, much I, now. I Not dweeb. so yeah, much now. You you filled out. <laughs> go go back down there now and show them what's up. Oh man, that's awesome. So, yeah. you know, I usually start these interviews with like, hey, where'd you grow up? Where are you from? But I know with, since we've talked before, I, I wanted to approach it a little differently. But yeah, you, I mean, 
so many people on this show, they start off in sports. You know, they fall in love with sports or play sports growing up before falling in love with the outdoors and adventure. And once adventure comes in, it's like, I, I don't know if it's because the opportunities are endless and it's not so structured as sports are in the sense of, well, I can't, I've lost my chance to be a professional athlete, but there's really no one that can tell me I can't be a professional adventurer. I don't know why that is. For me personally, that was a big reason. But also adventure just, I mean, it's its so unexpected. You just don't know where it's going to take you, what you're going to be doing. Um, and for you, it was uh, it was interesting. It was sports, then the Marines. We do see a lot of that as well. Uh, then fitness, and then getting more into the business. And then you then you had a couple really interesting world records. Could, could you talk about those a little bit? I remember talking about those the first time, the ski erg uh, world record and then the chin-ups world record, which was just... Uh, insane. And I feel like this was a great transition to where it's like, I'm going to start using my body, which I I can adapt and mold to do incredible things, but to also make a really big impact in the world. Can you talk about how these ideas came about? Because it seems so, so unique compared to where your story had taken you up to that point. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, I, I think the first thing is I just had some stupid yeah, ideas. Yeah. Well, so. it usually starts there. Usually starts there. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, it, it actually started off for me with I did a 24-hour event for a local gym because they had a member who sadly passed away w- with cancer and they did a fundraiser. So I had one, you know, an assault bike, Mason. Have you used one of them before? I'm sure you have. I can tell by that that lovely look you've got when I said assault bike. How happy you were about that? Yeah, I, did, I thought I had one, and I said, look, I'll do I'll do 24 hours on it um, just to help with the fundraising. So. I did that completely naive. So I turned up with uh, like with a pint of milk and a bag of croissants and some Haribo, like some sweets and just, and, and pedaled on it for 24 hours, which it was absolutely brutal. And oh my God. yeah, I, I just about got through that with some help, with some help, some energy drinks as well. But I, I did that and that was it really for maybe another year or two. And then, yeah, I, I said, I was doing some work with the local charity, helping, helping kids who involve, who have got themselves involved with, gangs or drugs and crime and they sort of try and get them out of that position called they're called the saints foundation and they try and then get them back into school or back into work or even just into some kind of hobby away from that so i was doing work with them and then and that's when covid hit and i'm sure it was like yourself it was out of nowhere we went straight into lockdown and they lost all their funding so i said well look, i'll do something for charity and the only thing i had was a ski erg so i said well look I'll do 24 hours on the ski erg. Uh, I always say some of this stuff and the reason I've done it is always from being naive, <laughs> from being naive to say, yeah, I think that's possible and completely downplaying it. And then literally usually, what usually happens is a few days before I'm like, wow, have I bit off more than I can chew here? And then, uh, and then you sort of get into it and you have to be proper stubborn and just fight through it. So with this one I did, I sort of said, well, look, I've got to start training for it. And I did an hour on the ski erg. In that hour, I think I did about 12K maybe a bit more, I'm not sure, about 12K. And I just went on the website and looked at the world record and I thought, actually, you know, I, I looked at distance and for me to beat the world record, what I did in that hour, I'd have to hold for every hour for 24 hours. So I said, well, I reckon with a bit of training, I might be able to get that, you know, up to four hours. And then if, I'm, if I've got a bit more, I might get eight. And if I can have three months prep, I think I'll get up to 12 hours. In my head, I was like, if I can do 12 hours that pace, I could have a good crack at the world record. So, yeah, so I started training for it, just ski, 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 ski. And about a week before I took the attempt, we'd announced it as a world record attempt and stuff. And a week before, um, some American ex professional strongman went and beat it by about 40k <laughs> so i remember thinking oh, i'm gonna look like an idiot now so so yeah so we started but i started and went into it and i, I managed to to set the record and all the world record and i think i did about 280 or thousand meters i think it's i think someone's beaten it now but um yeah i, I and you got the record you got the record yes yeah 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 um got the record so i sort of i had a game plan with this where i was like i'm gonna you know, with these 24 hour events, I've done a few now and I know that men, they're, they're mentally so challenging because you get half an hour in, you're tired and there's that little thing in the voice in your head. Sometimes it's properly shouting going, you've got 23 and a half hours to go. And that's such a mental battle to deal with that time frame. 
the way I broke this one down was four sets of six hours, and each hour was um, uh, part of that six-hour goal. So each hour, I'd break it down. So I skied for about 58 minutes, and I had my hands strapped to the to the skier candles and a chair behind me, and I'd just sit down, eat some food for, for two minutes and drink, and then stand back up and just repeat that process. So I did that, and... I think I got to maybe like a 20 hour point and then I, I tore something in the left side of my back, which meant I had to ski the last four hours in one hand, which is slightly annoying. And the time went so slow those last four hours because I was doing it a lot slower. But um, yeah, yeah, I managed to scrape through and, and get the record. And for anyone that's it's not magic, what skier is, it's that machine that kind of simulates cross-country skiing where you, you've got these two handles from above and you're pulling them down below you. And you're just doing that. So you can uh, kind of track, you know, your distance, like you said. And you went 283,000 meters, which translates to, for folks in the U.S., 175 miles by basically cross-country skiing <laughs> in 24 hours. And a lot of that, like you said, four hours of that on one on one hand. And, and that's what we talked about. That first half hour, that was that acceptance period. And that's what I always tell folks. It's like, you know, no matter what challenge you're starting, there is always that within somewhere in that first 10% of the time or distance or commitment or money you put in, whatever this challenge is for yourself, that's the time that you have those second guesses. And then when you can get through that, I don't know. There's just, I just saw, like I said, I just saw it this weekend when we were getting through. It's like, I can't do this for the amount of time I'm supposed to. Uh, what am I going to do? There's always breaks in there. There's always things you don't see that make it easier once you keep going. It's almost like the challenge always is forcing you right at the beginning to say, do you really want to do this? We're going to make it really hard to say yes. But once you do say yes, and and I don't know, once you want, it's like once the challenge knows you're in it, it almost like it eases up on you a little bit. Of course, that's all mental, but it does feel like it gets a little easier. Maybe not. Maybe not for you. Maybe that. La- but then it gets a lot harder towards the end when you know the goal is almost complete. That's where I find it also very challenging to get through and and, and get the, across that finish line right at the end. And I'm sure you see that in 24 hour challenges. Oh, you go through you go through waves of it constantly. But yeah, it's yes. that accept- once you once you get to the point you accept what you're in and what you're doing, you commit it, then it, everything does become a little bit easier. And then you just deal with the the different elements of physical challenge that you face during those 24 hour periods. And the you know the, the the big thing I always always try and do is fight towards that 12 hour point and get over halfway because you know the analogy of getting to the top of the mountain and you're on the way back down. I knew that after 12 hour point, I'm on the way back down and I'm 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 trying to really make sure I'm over halfway of that record. And I know if I'm over halfway of the record, then I'm on track. And, you know, there's lots of different things playing in your mind during those, because you can't just switch off to it for 24 hours. You, your mind's going crazy. So you're looking at pacing, you're looking at the speed, the distance you've covered. You're looking at, you know, you think about how tired you are, how your hands are blistering, what your feet feel like, all that stuff. So I always say to be good at this kind of stuff, and I suppose it translates into adventure-based work as well. It's like dealing with stress. So how good are you at dealing with stressful situations? And I think that's just trained for experience and what works for you as an individual. So you're totally right. You're totally right. Obviously, it's, it's easy to talk about the ones I've done well at. I've also done 24-hour ones that haven't gone so well and I've failed or failed record attempts. And Like the chin-up challenge. Yeah, a few. Yeah, chin-up challenge, 24 hours of chin-ups. That was probably the one that hurts the most. But I keep thinking about that and, you know, I'm, I'm sure in the near future I might have another go. But I decided to do the 24 hours of chin-ups because, uh, again, another fundraiser for a youth charity and uh, the, the kids I was working with, kind of like the odds are against them and you can tell them that's how they live there. That's how they view everything. The odds are against them. So I thought, well, kind of align with that. I'll choose a record attempt that the odds are against me selfishly kind of motivates me even more. And it, I find it a bit more interesting rather than doing something I know I'm good at. But then also, um, it's a nice message for them. So yeah, so when I say I'm not good at them, it's because I'm quite tall. I'm about six foot two. So I've got quite long arms. My ape index is ridiculous. And then uh, I'm quite heavy. So I, I say about 100 kilos, which I think you work in pounds, don't you? Which I think is about 220 odd pounds, I think. So I just started... Yeah, 220 tra- pounds. There you go. Yeah. So Dang, think, you're big. 
<laughs> it's because I eat too much. That's what it is. <laughs> and yeah, I just started training for it in my back garden and had literally a, a pull-up bar mount on the wall. And I just pretty much did exactly what I do with a lot of the events. So I just do like linear progression. So I went, well, look, I'll do a, do a session where I'll do 50 chin-ups. And then over about six, seven months, I built up to the point where I was doing about two to 3,000 in a session. And the world record's five and a half. So my body completely adapted. Because I remember the first few months of training for that event, I literally could, I was struggling to sleep because every time I rolled onto my lats, they're so painful, they wake me up. But then... By the end of it, six months later, I did a I did a session. I remember I did a session where I did two thousand, and the next day I it didn't feel like I'd done anything. I felt fine. So it's really really funny how your body adapts. Um, so yeah, the you know this one was a big one for me. I had quite a lot of sponsorship in terms of donations for charity. I think we raised about sixty thousand pounds. Yeah, I, I suppose there's quite a lot riding on it in terms of opportunities for me going after going you know post this event and maybe. Three weeks before, I think I did three weeks. Out, I did three thousand as my last session, and just towards the end of those three thousand, I started to get a little tingly feeling in my chest. Nothing much. Didn't think much of it. Finished the three thousand. I think I did it, did it about ten hours, and so I knew that I was on track with my training to be able to then go and do go and do the whole the whole attempt. But this this tingling the next day got worse and worse. To the point where I was hurting to open a door, and I started to get really really nervous. And actually. That that three weeks in the lead up to the event was the biggest mental battle I think I've ever dealt with before. The amount of things that played on my mind because I knew that I think deep down I knew that I wasn't going to do that well, but I, I sort of still said I was going to do it. So had all the physio I could do to try and sort it out, and then we got into the event, and I think I got maybe an hour in, and it started flaring up, and then the pain just got worse and worse and worse. So I think I got I think I got to about three and a half thousand. Maybe I got to 3,000 in about 13 hours and then um, the painkillers just weren't helping anymore. And uh, I'd basically what had, what had happened was I'd, I'd, I'd tore my pec and, my, and, and part of it that attaches onto my bicep. I think I'm not a physio, so onto my bicep. And then uh, that just got worse and worse through the event and more and more painful. So I uh, got to the point where I, was, I, had, I think I had to stop at about the 20-hour point, maybe the 21-hour point. Um, I had to stop because I just physically could not get a pull-up anymore just because my arm had just... I'd basically... It, I looked good. I had like a double bicep. So my arms looked, my left arm looked huge. But yeah, it wasn't very functional for doing chin-ups. So yeah, I, that one, it hurts a little bit because I, I, I think I did about 50,000, 60,000 reps in total training for it because we counted the whole through the whole training program in the lead up to it and I was disappointed because I'd put so much time and effort into it and, and you know couldn't get it done but on the counter to that the, the fundraising was the goal so yeah we, we managed to raise a lot of money for charity which was incredible hey if that's the goal then you know you should be definitely proud of yourself and in these challenges that take this much time and you have you know, everybody has their tricks and what they do with endurance sports or just kind of what they focus their mind on. Are you thinking about anything like to, to help the time pass? Are you listening to anything? How do you deal with it? Or what kind of tricks have you learned that help you take on these really big challenges? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think there's lots of different things I do. So the breakdown of everything is is a huge one for me. So rather than thinking about the 24 hours, I'll think about the hour or I'll think about the six hours or the three hour point. And then as time gets, as it gets more and more difficult for me, that gets broken down even more. So I'll just think about the 10 minutes, you know, and, and even during that pull-up event, I remember, I remember towards the end, I was literally just thinking about the next set of two or three pull-ups and that was it. So you kind of like refine it and refine it and refine it to what's manageable in your head. So it removes too much stress from you. I think self-belief's a big one when, you know, you need to go into these things confident and I've gone into them before not confident and they don't go well and I have to go in confident and confidence stems from that preparation. Uh, you know, you're training in the lead up to it, all the organisation and, you know, the planning of it, how you nail the food and nutrition and things. Um, and then external motivation is pretty cool. So music's a big one for me. Like I really love music and um, I do heavily get heavily motivated when i when i put music on and, and so that was a, that's also a huge one to help me with that i think it's pretty much yeah, i think the breakdown is the big one but everything's built for experience 
So I've got better at doing these things because I've thrown myself into those situations. So I always say if people want to try something like that, then build into it. And that's, I think, you know, that's where you build your own personal strategy to deal with that stress. Often what it is, is, is that positive self-talk in your head. So, you know, rather than me, as an example, rather than me getting to the halfway point of those 24-hour events and thinking, oh my God, I'm only halfway through this. I think, oh, amazing. I've done half the work already. So it's just changing the way you perceive the information that makes a big difference. And you know, it's like when you meet people, we call them like radiators or drains. You meet radiators and they're people that bring energy into a room and they're positive and you can see how they look at the good side. And then you have drains that when they come into a room, you, they can, you can feel them just pull the energy out of it. It's kind of applying that kind of personality traits into these, into these kind of events. So you don't, you don't, basically put yourself under any unwanted stress. Radiators or trains. I've never heard that before. <laughs> uh, but it, it seems like it is a thing. It's people who are adding or subtracting. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so interesting. It makes you think, like, what am I? Are you a radiator? You know, it's. I guess it's, you know, it's better to be a radiator than it is a train. I think so. Unless, yeah. you know, a train's needed in that moment. But I, I, I think more often than not, it's not. <laughs> you need to be a radiator. It's a good point. I think um, it's something actually I delved into on the road because one of the guys I rode was a psychologist. He brought the fact that I didn't really show any kind of hardship at all. Like, he, he, you know, I just put up with it and smiled and cracked on. And he said, actually, he goes, it's a really at point. And I've been thinking about it since he said it. And, you know, maybe you can give me some thoughts on it. But he, he said that, I was in a position of leadership and he looked up to me in terms of, you know, getting across on the boat on the, uh, across the water. And he said, the fact that I didn't show that I was like down sometimes or finding times tough actually made it more difficult for him. And he said, actually, if I could, if I, if I didn't hide some of that stuff sometimes and showed him that I was really, you know, I was struggling a little bit, it would have made him feel, okay, well, if Jack's feeling like this, it's okay to feel like the way I do. Whereas because I was because I was always probably high and smiling and pushing through and working hard and you know it's and um, probably what I've tried to personally build over the last few years, it actually co- probably came a bit of a detriment to him and a team factor. So it's, that's one of the things I've sort of, I wrote down in my notepad the moment I got to Antigua to review and start thinking about is is you know that team leadership dynamic and I don't know what you think about that. That is a really interesting thought. I, I don't know. might have to think about it a little bit, but my gut reaction right now is, I don't know, I, I think I would push back against that a little bit and say, I see where he's coming from, but I almost feel like that's work that is more on his shoulders than yours of what he needs to do. Because to me, you know, your ability, I it's almost like saying, hey, I wish the players on my team weren't so good because then maybe I would be able to play a little better. No, I, I think you should be really thankful you're on a really good team. Say, if I'm, if I'm playing basketball, I wouldn't ask a player to not be as good as they are. You know, if it led to better teamwork, yes. But hey, you know, if, 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 you're, if the outcome is winning, then great, you know, whatever gets us there. Um, so yeah, I, I would say potentially. I wouldn't dwell on that too much personally, just because I think your skill is so rare not so. I mean, it is rare, and it's so hard for a lot of people to to get to that point where they can smile through that stuff. I don't know. I just think that's rare in today's world, and it's it, it's important to hold on to that. Because I have a good friend that's very much like you in that sense. Like the way you're describing it, he's like that too. And I, I lean on him a lot. I'm like, man, you know, if he if he if he can keep a smile through this, because I'm someone. I, I'll be honest. I I wear my emotions pretty openly. I get frustrated. I'm I'm not one that keeps my composure all the time. <laughs> and so I lean on people that are probably like you in those moments to say, all right, you know, Jack, Jack can keep it together. Let, let me do a better job of controlling these emotions, staying mentally strong and keep going. But I've never heard that before. That's an interesting thought. It is. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's um, the, the thing I wrote down was like authenticity. It's like, is that, you know, how authentic can you be in those situations? And that's something, yeah, I've definitely, you know, I think we're all trying to work on something, can't we? So something I'm thinking about more and more. I would say, yeah, if, if you're if you're being inauthentic about it and, you know, you're putting on a front, you know, I, I would be careful of that. But, it, man, if that's just who you are, 
you know, if you're authentically, hey, the person that wants to push through and, and whatnot, I would say keep going. Be, be that rock for people. If it's preventing you from opening up to people, yeah, maybe. But anyway, we this ain't therapy. So uh, you know, save, save it for your therapist. I'm just yeah, kidding. Thanks for your time there, mate. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, that's really interesting. I love that idea, though. Well, that's really cool, though, to get that feedback that you're, you know, you're, you're a leader. This is your attitude. And, and kind of, you know, a lot of times when someone like you is on the show that has so much to talk about and has done so many cool things, I tend to want to focus on something. But what was so interesting about your story is, yeah, you are so positive and so happy through a lot of this and, and, and so excited about it all. I wanted to kind of get into your mindset and how you, how you do that. And so after those 24-hour challenges, it, it, it really seems like your story has ramped up quickly. You went and did the uh, Marathon de Saab, uh, the toughest foot race in the world. We've had a lot of people on the show who've done that. It was absolutely insane. And then in 2022, you had what I would call a banner year, just a series of unbelievable, maybe once in a lifetime adventures for a lot of people. Why, why was 2022 such a big year for you? How did you get all that into one year? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I think some of it's just luck. Uh, I suppose like anything, it's like, you know, you get a ball rolling and, the, and it gets moving faster and faster and faster and then opportunities come your way. So, yeah, it, I suppose I had, I'd always wanted to do the, the MDS. I'd always wanted to do that. I never had the money to be able to do it. So once I sold the business, it enabled me to be able to sign up to it straight away and do it. So that was my first thing I said. I remember when I was deployed, deployed out in Afghanistan, rather than telling my mum I was okay, I sent her a letter and all it said was, hi, mum, can you find out about this race across the Sahara? Love you, Jack. And that's all it said. And she found the letter to show me when I got <laughs> back um, from the MDS, which made me laugh. So, so yeah, so that was where it all kind of started. I always wanted to do that. I think I'd watched it on TV and just had an interest in it. So, And then this Africa expedition kind of like came out of kind of came out of nowhere it was it was linked to a charity where they'd, they'd asked me to go out and spend uh, a week and a half out of this school teaching and doing doing some fundraising and then spending some time after that with these clients who had paid to go on this kind of like safari trip through africa through part of southern africa uh, specifically like along the zambezi river and they wanted me to join them as their like the guest with them and spend time with them so when I found out what they were doing and the fundraising I was like well look like I can do that it sounds amazing why don't I go and build another expedition on on this that we can sort of bolt in and add a add that adventure starts adventure side to it and then yeah like anything the conversation started and then we started to speak to people on the ground and then we we came up with this whole challenge Africa which well it was absolutely incredible it started off that we looked at we looked at well the the journey was going to be between these three different charity charity choices that we were going to go between so the first one was in zambia or the first one was zimbabwe sorry where we we found this project called the cobra project which is uh, in a really remote part of of, of west southwestern zimbabwe that there's no work opportunities there at all at literally none so the people that live out there in the literally in the middle of nowhere they they live to survive that's it so there's suddenly these job opportunities called Cobras, which was basically anti-poaching. And they were going to look after these white rhinos that had just been reintegrated back in. But the whole idea is full circle, bring money back into that area that stops those locals from having to go and kill these wildlife that increases tourism. And then it goes around in a circle. And so it was a really cool project. We said, we'll start there. Then the next one was, well, the next one's in Zambia. It's a school project where they're going to try. They've got a, a really tiny little school just off the Zambezi River, on this island and they basically wanted to expand the school because they the more and more children wanted to go and they they needed to expand it and then finally it was a preschool in Botswana which again really remote you're looking at like four or five hour drive just to the nearest town and the preschools there are really important for the parents to enable them to to actually go and survive look after go and find work um, re-educate themselves so those are the three projects. And we said, well, with these three projects, let's find a journey between all of them and, and basically move between them. So it started in Zimbabwe, where I want to say it's about 400. It's been a while now, so I talked about it. But I think it's about 400K 
of running, mountain biking, trekking through the bush up to uh, up to Vic Falls, Victoria Falls. And that that was where the whole thing started. So the Cobras were kind enough to run the first 30k with me. And wow, they were impressive. They were so fast running through the sand. At one point, I, th- I remember thinking, I-, I don't know if I'm going to keep up with these guys now. They're so, so impressive and so fast. And we ran, they were, they were cool. They ran me the whole way. Luckily, we'd just done a little interview in this village with the village elder there, the chief, they call him. And uh, then, then we set off on this run again. They ran this next 5K. I want to say, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if they're running like under a 20-minute 5K in boots on sand. And I was like clinging on for dear life to keep with them. Jeez. And then luckily after that 5K, we grabbed some water and uh, we had to put body armor on and uh, and carry a weapon just because the area we were going through said, it was a little bit more dangerous. I, I want to stop people and, and say, look on your Instagram because I think that's the picture I saw of you running through the sand with these dudes and guns and, and body armor. And it, it might be the most badass picture I've ever seen. So anyway, <laughs> I, 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 I was going to ask you the story behind that picture. So go keep going. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly <laughs> what it was. But yeah, I don't know if the word's badass, but I'll take that. Okay. I'll, I'll probably have to screen yeah. grab that. Um, yeah. Uh, so so yeah, ran that with them, and then after that, it was it was mountain biking through the bush and some trekking. The trek was really really cool because part of that area in what's called Huangi. You, you need you have to pay for a guide to go with you so you're not allowed there on your own so we had this local guide with us and he was a really really good guy and we went trekking through the bush and we got maybe and when we go through the bush we're, we're proper in the middle of nowhere and we're crossing all sorts of wildlife going through reeds head high through riverbeds dried out riverbeds past elephants giraffe all sorts of wildlife and he and he started to look nervous and I remember thinking, is he all right? I could tell you. You can tell when someone's not looking comfortable. And he kept checking and I was like, you're okay? And he's like, oh, I'm not totally sure where we are. And I remember going, well, it's like, I remember him going, he had a GPS. I said, we'll check the GPS. We'll just double check it. And the GPS wouldn't turn on. It was broken. So luckily he had this map and this map was, I think it was about 70 years old. And we had this old compass. So the next rest of that day to get to the RV point, was map and compass, just following a bear, walking on a bear in through all these reeds with no idea what animals we would come across. But we managed to get back and and then get back to these bikes to carry on. And we had a number of challenges, like any adventure, which now made it really fun. You know, the support vehicle that's carrying the journalist and the videographer and, and the and the rest of the team, they got stuck in some in some terrible bad, bad swamp we had to basically spend we spent hours trying to get it out in this like waist high mud trying to drive out this this land rover out of this mud and it wouldn't get out we couldn't get it out so we ended up having to cycle back for an hour or two back to the local village and pay someone to come and get help us get out with their vehicle and all those kind of challenges that that add to the add to the actual adventure that you planned once we got to victoria falls and it was like crossing the border and crossing the border you went into zambia which is just an incredible country like so raw you know and, and we crossed the border there and i met what we'd call our fixer and he met me there with a bike ready to start cycling because we were going to cycle to this school and this bike was a size small mountain bike so i ended up jumping on this looking like i was riding a bmx and i had about 90k to or, or maybe like 70 miles to cycle up to the school that day and then we started this whole baobab tree climb challenge which on the island where the school were there's these baobab trees. I don't know if you have you seen a picture of the baobab trees. We talked about it last and time, and I and I looked it up. It's it's the it's those classic, really wide, beautiful trees in Africa that I I, I didn't know they you could are you're allowed to climb them. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously the climbing technique we use, which I can talk about in a bit, was is is what you call ethical in terms of looking after the tree so are those everyone has seen a picture of these trees you just didn't know what they were so so google baobab b a o b a b trees and you climbed all of those on that island yeah the, the goal was to climb and we put another 24 hour challenge you can't get away from those 24 hour <laughs> no, dude, you, you and 24 hour challenges that's like it's your thing i know it's <laughs> yeah so we you know the attempt was to climb every single one on the island in that 24 which which i managed to do and it was it's it's, it's a really cool experience it was actually tough than i thought so so what you what you do the technique for climbing these the, these baobab trees are huge and i mean ridiculously wide to give you an idea i had a 20 meter rope 
to go round the circumference of the tree to use as an anchor. So you, so I wrapped it round. At one point, the rope only just made it in order for me to tie on. Huge and old, thousands of years old. Yeah, yeah, old, old trees. But they're fascinating trees because um, a lot of them are hollow. They hold water, which is why animals love them. And the bark, if you like, if you, if the bark all gets kicked off or whatever, or gets broken off by elephants, the bark regrows, which is which is not normal for trees. So. Um, and the, the locals uh, find these trees fascinating. They worship them because they believe that if you look at the picture of them, the way the, the, the branches look at the very top of them, it looks like it's, it's the roots on top. So the, the, what the local, a lot of the locals believe is that the God basically wasn't happy with these trees because they had taken all the water and he pulled them out of the ground and turned them upside down. So that's there that a lot of the locals believe about the baobab tree. The challenge was climb them all. And what you do... Is and I learned this before I went out from from uh, from some people near me that that specialise in tree climbing, and you have a big slingshot with a with a little bean bag on, and it's connected to paracord or some kind of like string. And what you do is you fire this bean bag over the top of the strong branch as high as you can up these trees. Yep. Once you've once you've fired it over. And that's a difficult process in itself because you've got to get the aim right and the, not get the string tangled or stuck anywhere. And then once you've done that, you you tie your climbing rope to that string and pull it over the branch. So you pull it, pull it all the way over. And then from there, what you do is you've got the base anchor around the bottom of the tree, which tightens up around the trunk. And then you tie on to the actual climbing rope and tie the climbing rope to the anchor. So your counterweight is kind of tightened around the trunk of the tree. And then you have an ascender. So a bit like if, any, if there's any climbers, I'm sure they've done ascending before on big walls and things. You've got a foot and ascender and a knee ascender. And you 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 basically walk your way up the rope as well as gripping onto it up to the, as high as you to, to that point onto the branch. You then hook onto the branch and climb over. And then from there, then it's like, well, have I got? A, we were going to the crown of each tree. So then there was points where then I'd have to re-tie the rope system and, and do the ping again and get higher up the tree because these trees were huge absolutely ginormous so yeah it was it was a cool experience my favorite experience in the middle of the night when everyone had gone to bed um it's just me out there and it's i turned my head torch off and it was just pitch black and all you could hear were these hyenas calling pretty nearby um and it was just like wow what how lucky i was to be in that situation there and have the opportunity to do it so yeah i, I was so so lucky just to be on that island and see these huge baobabs that have been there for so long the stupidest thing i did that 24 hours was like maybe like four in the morning where uh, I got to the top of one of these baobabs and it was just hollow on the inside. So I thought, well, I'll abseil down the inside of it. So I abseiled down it. And as I got down to the bottom, stopped just to see if there's any snakes and things in the trunks. They often live there. As I turned my head torch on and went, looked down, these mozzies and flies, thousands of them come out of nowhere. And basically there were so many of them that it blotted out the head torch and went pitch black. And I got absolutely bitten to shreds. And I remember trying to clip my ascender on and send out the rope out the, up the rope as quick as possible and out of the tree. But I came out of it, my arms just and legs covered in bites. And uh, that was the stupidest thing I did. I didn't go back in there after that. Oh my gosh, man. <laughs> and so this this challenge <laughs> Africa, which I thought was going to be a lot of the conversations up not. It 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 was just offered different reasons but what would you say the overall reason was was it conservation was it to bring awareness to some of these issues like the cobra team which is a a a 24 7 patrol to prevent poachers from killing the remaining megafauna big animals out on these preserves like what what was your overall goal with the whole thing i'll probably say opportunity specifically opportunity for for young people that was where it's all that's where it's all built around and i'm quite when I, when I when I came back from Africa and you know we we had one more bit that we'll talk about in a bit after that tree climbing but when I got back the biggest overriding thing I had playing in my head was you know what do they actually need because they are so everyone out there is so happy and content and and positive and just amazing people like you know I, I do think they've they've taken a bit of my heart mate when, and I miss being out there so I was like do they need Western ideas do they just need money throwing at them. And the, and the thing I came to was actually, no, what they just need is opportunity for education, I think. So if they get that opportunity for education, they then can make the, uh, the decisions themselves of what they think is best because they're also passionate about their individual countries. So, um, yeah, everything was built around that. So the Cobras, all the Cobras are like late teens, young, tw- uh, early 20s. 
So again, it's opportunity of work for them and something for them to strive forward towards the school projects. Both school projects were educational based. So offering education in areas that normally they probably wouldn't have it or they'd struggle to get any good education. So yeah, I think it's all built around opportunity. We seriously struggle with the fundraising for this for the, for this one massively compared to all the other events. Um, I think timing and and you know I'm quite passionate. I want to do some more fundraising for them in the future and help those charities out because we did we did manage to raise a whole lot of money for them. Jack, I think the combination of adventure and and fundraising for for amazing causes, especially you know conservation and education, that's. I think it's just such a winning formula. You know, yeah, we love adventure. In fact, we got an adventure grant going. It's probably over by the time this episode airs, but we're giving away, you know, for money and gear to folks who are doing basically things like this, folks that are doing adventures that help the world in some way. There's nothing wrong with doing adventure just for, you know, personal development or enjoyment. I do that all the time myself. But there's something so special about combining a cause with a big challenge that I, I think it's a great way for every person to get involved to make the world a better place. And so re- I really think that, you know, even though you didn't reach your goals here, I, I think you're on to something in this area and, and with the things you want to do. So like I was saying before, Jack, you know, your, your story is escalating quickly. Like it's not even, in, to my opinion, it's just getting going 2021, the end of 2021, the Marathon de Sobs, and then 2022, really it's just about a year and a couple months from all of that happening together. And that went from, you know, 24-hour challenges before that, and it's just quickly escalated. What What is coming for you? Is 2023 set to be another year of that, or is it, you know, a time to reflect and figure out what you're doing next? Where Where is all this headed towards? Oh, definitely, yeah, I think... This this year is going to be probably a bit of a consolidation year of I've got to sort my own personal house. I'll probably say you know you say you can't you can't do other things until you sort your own house out. So I'm going to be trying to sort my own finances out because I've been sort of throwing cash into doing a lot of these things. So I'm now I'm going to be you know making sure that I'm um, able to pay bills and earn a little bit of money. But yeah, be sure that I'll definitely be doing a few challenges along the way. They'll probably be a little bit shorter than, say, Challenge Africa, because I was away for maybe six weeks there. I've been away on the road for about eight weeks, maybe a bit more. And I've been away in the mountains for a number of weeks this year or over the last year. So I think this 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 winter, this summer, sorry, I'll be back out to the Alps for a week or two. Um, I've got a few aspirations, North Face of the Eiger, which if you haven't seen before, definitely go and Google that. I'll go and hit some just time in the mountains, but that'll all be personal things. Whether it be like learn learning new skills or applying them, and then yeah, then we're kind of at the drawing board at the minute of going. You know, I've got a few jobs coming up. I'm guiding in Borneo through the jungle in in June and July for a few weeks. I'm taking. I think I've got about 20, 20 year olds, which I think is going to be a big challenge. So through the jungle for three weeks. And how, and how, do they, how does that fight. happen? Do you have a place you're advertising these kinds of uh, experiences or do they reach out to you? No, this is actually a company came to me and asked, would I would I guide this? But um, yeah, I am actually in the process of building my own expedition company where, you know, I'll, I'll maybe discuss off with you about some ideas for it because I'm starting to think about branding at the minute. But um, yeah, that's going to be quite niche. We're building some different niche expeditions that you would normally see online um, for small groups, five or six people. The idea behind it is create some stories to tell. Oh. So if you you know, I want to I want to create I want to take people on expeditions where they've got stories they can tell their grandchildren about and have something a picture on the wall or a vlog, a five minute video of their experience and can be proud of what they've accomplished. So yeah, I'm in the process of building that. Challenge-wise, you know, I've already already been talking about another row, which by the time this comes out, something else might get announced. The mountaineering bits, and I've just recently done my safari guide quals, so I'm going to be back out in Africa doing definitely doing some more out there. Jack, I I love the energy. I love what you're doing, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming back on and, and, and talking, you know, to us again about this experience. I know that, uh, you know, things didn't go to plan the first time, but hey, that's adventure. That's what I tell people. You know, we talk to people from all over the world. You know, sometimes audio isn't great. Yours happens to be awesome. So this sounds awesome. 
you know, sometimes we lose things, sometimes things happen, but anyone that has been on this show knows that, that, that stuff happens. So I appreciate your patience and coming back on, gosh, you know, months later to talk about some of these stories and congrats on what you've done since the last time we talked. I know that was all, uh, looking ahead when we talked the first time. So now it's in the rear view things you've completed, man. And, uh, Talk about an adventure high. I would say, you know, you're not asking for advice, but just be aware that, you know, after any big adventure, especially a, a, a chain of amazing things that you look forward to, there is a huge lull on the other side that we hear from folks all the time on this show talk about. I've gone through it personally where you get really depressed. And uh, yeah, if you're not, if you're not yet, I hope, I hope you find ways to uh, minimize that. But in a lot of ways, it is unescapable because these, these highs come at a price but man it, it, it's still so so worth it oh thank you man that's, uh, that's good well it's good advice and you're, you're so true i bow that all the time what what's how do you fix it is it just booking another <laughs> adventure and then look forward to it again <laughs> uh you know that's that some people do deal with it that way i would say that's not always the healthiest way to just constantly you know that treadmill in your in your emotions in your mind and never really truly dealing with it. I think a lot of it is just going through it. It's kind of also it's almost an anti-adventure where you have to accept just like you have to accept you're about to row across the ocean, you know, two or three days in and like, oh my God, am I really gonna do this? It's the same way when you're home. You know, I have to accept that there is going to be a stretch of time that isn't as exciting as some of those. And that first part of that is is it's basically the same sort of experience, just on the opposite end of the spectrum. And there's beauty in both of it. And as someone who now has two kids and where my adventures are much shorter, you know, weekends or uh, at the most a week, but more frequent also, there's beauty in it all. You can get to the point where you're okay with it. Definitely, mate. That's very, that's very good advice. I appreciate it. Because it is something that I'll be, I, I, I always finish these. I'm like, Back to normal life again, and it's really, really difficult. I look at my bank account. I'm like, oh my god, I've got to, yeah. got to earn some money now. And there's those those day to day challenges that we all face. That, like you said, you can't replicate that high that you have from these adventures. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I'm sure it's something I'm going to be dealing with over the coming months. Absolutely, yeah, and, and you know, good luck. And uh, if there's anything we can do for you, please let me know. And we'll be looking forward to, to posting this episode. Amazing. Well, mate, thank you very much for uh, yeah getting me back on and uh, and chatting. It's been good to chat again, mate. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.